Hello, and welcome to Geek Between the Lines, the podcast that explores compelling ideas and some of our favorite geeky properties. I'm Brittany. And I'm Chris. And this week, we are continuing with our read-through of Mockingjay, looking at Chapter 9. Chris, can you give us a recap? I absolutely can. Good. It's your job this week. So Katniss and Finnick worry as nobody in District 13 mentions PETA's last broadcast. Katniss eventually confronts Gale about it, upset that he lied to her, as well as about PETA's treatment. Katniss, Gale, Plutarch, and the film crew go out to District 12 to shoot a propo about his destruction, where Katniss feels like they're violating the dead and was once her only safe space in the woods. When they take a break at the cabin in the lake, Katniss shows Pollux how to whistle with the Mockingjays, and then sings The Hanging Tree, a song about a hanged man and his lover that she remembers learning from her father. She realizes that they were filming her song, and Plutarch insensitively applauds her heartfelt moment. When they go to Gale and Katniss's hunting spot, she thinks about the distance between them and makes an overture to make up. After short messages to Peta and about Gale's whipping, Katniss returns home, where she and Gale discuss her kissing him when he was healing. She kisses him again after seeing his pain. Back at District 13, Katniss goes to a command meeting where they witness a battle between a capital broadcast of Snow and Peta and Beatty interrupting with short images and clips. With the chaos that ensues, the unwell Peta is barely able to get out that District 13 would be dead by morning before he's assaulted on camera. Definitely a very rude place to end a chapter, Collins. Right. And part one of the book, too. I know. I mean, is there anyone in the world who stopped at that end of the chapter? <laughs> we did now. We but unfortunately we'd already had to. read it. Yeah. You know, like the first time reading it, there's no way anyone would stop there. Absolutely. But we did, so why don't we get into what happens in this chapter? Sure. What are your striking moments? What's standing out to you or something that you're noticing for the first time? One thing that is really hitting me in a different way this time is the music. Is mm-hmm. the hanging tree and the issues around it. Because we've talked about this before like in Lord of the Rings where a lot of times I kind of skip, skip over, over <laughs> or very, you know, lightly pay attention to musical parts of of books just because it doesn't really grip me very well. Same. If I can't hear the tune, it's very difficult. Mm -hmm. And I'm not a composer, so. And even if I can, like, seeing things repeated because they're, you know, multiple stanzas and it just makes me not as engaged. But I think probably in part because of the experience of reading The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes and the music in there, but also just through this act of really trying to absorb as much as we can from the book, I took just a little bit more time to kind of go through the book and go through that music. And I found in particular Collins writing about the act of engaging in music, starting from when they start whistling with the Mockingjays, Mm -hmm. to be really evocative. The way that she writes about the the tunes and the music and how it ties in with Katniss's memories, both the really awful memories of the Hunger Games, which was the last time that she sang Rue's notes with Mockingjays, and her memories of her father teaching her the hanging tree, and just how she sings that song itself, I think are... Yeah, just really, really evocative. Those the word just kept coming to me. She kind of describes in in almost quickening narrative all of these hard memories that are coming towards her. 
and then how she starts to sing as a way of distracting herself from it. Mm-hmm. And the way that, especially Katniss's narrator, describes herself singing is something that I just haven't seen very often. And especially seeing Pollux's responses to her singing, uh, I think is just really powerful. So I just found that the the writing of that, that time period kind of hit me in a way that I hadn't experienced much even throughout this read-through, um, mm-hmm. but I thought was really strong. Definitely, yeah. Yeah, I, I kind of feel similarly. And other things where there's songs I just, you know, I'll read it the first time I read the book, mm-hmm. but it's just not very gripping for me so in future times I usually just skip over it but yeah I think Collins does a better job than I've seen in other books that have that element mm-hmm. yeah making it not only be a part of Katniss's character and her inner monologue and her interpretations and, and things like that but also, yeah, having it be involved with memory, having it be mm-hmm. involved with community as well as oppression, I think is, uh, there's many more layers to it than just like, oh, let's sing a song now, you know. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah that was my other striking moment is when she starts talking about how her perceptions of the song have changed over time. Totally. I yeah. thought was really fascinating how... You know, when she's a kid, she doesn't have any understanding of what's being discussed in the song, is even making rope necklaces and, mm-hmm. and things like that. Totally. I mean, it's such a great human thing, mm-hmm. right? That when we were kids, maybe we sang Ring Around the Rosy. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Then you're like, oh, this is not a children's song. Not, not that children should be sheltered right. from learning about the horrors of the world, but without those explained, they're just a complete misinterpretation and weird phenomenon. Yeah, and, and I found it particularly interesting how Katniss as a kid doesn't see the song as creepy at all, but then when she starts growing up, she does start to understand what the meanings behind the words are, and she does start feeling like the hanged person is creepy in wanting their lover to be hanged alongside them and stuff but Baby, then, it's cold outside <laughs> I mean, you don't necessarily and you're like oh no is he grow up what's going on totally but then oh sorry you're probably going to this next point yeah yeah that <laughs> then she now realizes that maybe there are reasons why someone in that position would feel that way. You know, as totally. as she recognizes that welcoming death can be a form of resistance or agency or mercy when you're living under torturous oppression. Mm-hmm. And that, yeah, there are reasons why the, the song could be powerful in a community like District 12 outside of just being a kind of macabre story. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think it's also artfully done that she's thinking about this right after thinking about Rue dying and then Cato's torturous end mm-hmm. leads her to, to even start singing the song and... And so you very much understand why she's 
continued to evolve her understanding of this from from her experiences it's not as clear-cut as even you know maybe two three years ago she might have felt it was more if she thought back on those lyrics yeah absolutely and especially with everything that her and Finnick have gone through and are continuing to go through you know wishing that you yourself or those you care about were dead rather than Mm -hmm. tortured is so hard and yeah it it's rare for songs to kind of evoke that but i think that those that do yeah they can be powerful for for that reason yeah definitely what about you what were your striking moments a tiny one that I just really enjoy how Katniss uses Soldier Snidely, mm. Soldier Hawthorne. You would. <laughs> it's, it's just great. <laughs> I was also, yeah, thinking about going into this book, having read it several times, you know that she and Gail have a lot more conflict. Mm-hmm. But really just thinking on what Gail has done here and by not telling Katniss about Peta's second interview. Mm-hmm. He's becoming complicit with the others in caring more about Katniss performing for the cause yeah. than the fact that she would want to know because this is what's happening to someone she cares about. Even even the the rationale, it's like, oh, the word will make her sick. And it's like, okay, she's already clearly traumatized emotionally, psychologically, but also physically. Mm-hmm. I mean, she was literally just in the hospital. Yeah. So, it, yeah, it's just like they need her to not be too disabled so that she can perform for the propose. So, yeah, I mean, it's a big deal because this is how everybody has been treating her. And now Gail is too. Yeah, absolutely. She has taken to heart PETA's idea of not wanting to be a piece in someone's games. And Mm -hmm. District 13 is trying to use her that way as well. And she has gained a lot more agency or, or recognized her agency a lot more at this point than she had earlier but it is so distressing to have everyone around her trying to control her and then for gail to do it too to mm-hmm. go along with it and and yeah it's also hypocritical of him to have this kind of paternalistic view of oh i know it's best for her and mm-hmm. it's not to hear this even, even if she would want to it might just cause her pain or what have you and obviously there's different rationale behind it but he is upset at the capital because the capital limits the freedoms and ability for the districts to live their lives and so yeah i see it as as fairly hypocritical for him to to then try to utilize that kind of patronizing excuse for how he treats her Totally. And I mean, I don't think it was necessarily his idea. Of course But not. he went along with it. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, that's the thing. I think in some ways she gets much more angry at him, at Haymitch, at District 13, because they're the proclaimed good side. Mm-hmm. And she expects this from the Capitol, even though she hates it. But... 
when she's treated not to the same degree, but using some of the same ideas uh, by both sides. Yeah, that would just be pretty infuriating and, yeah, hypocritical, like you said. Yeah. And the last thing that I was struck by is just, again, always being impressed with Katniss's compassion and considerateness that she remembers to send her mom a message about going Mm. to District 12 and that she won't be in danger because the last time she went to District 8, her mom expressed how worried they were. And, of course, they wouldn't check with her. They don't even tell her. They don't even notify her. And Katniss, in this state of... She didn't sleep at all the night before. She's constantly you know in a state of lack of rest because of her nightmares she's worried about PETA she's feeling like she can't trust District 13 or even Gail you know and yet she still remembers and asks a message to be sent which is yeah just very impressive absolutely yeah you're making me also think about uh this is not who I chose for my from another POV but what her mom is going through totally yeah because Katniss is what 17 at this point like Mm -hmm. she's still a child in so many respects and her mom knows that she has so little power to stop her from going out and being a soldier going out to war going out and doing these things and seeing her every day come home with new injuries with trauma with these nightmares and knowing that there's so little she can do about it especially as a healer uh yeah that must be a really really hard position for her mom and for Katniss to do even the small things that she can to help alleviate that to consider that I think is yeah it's impressive definitely I mean and and seeing your kid take on this role that they are not prepared for and that like no one should have to do yeah that would that would be very difficult to watch I imagine absolutely but speaking of from another point of view, why don't we go into that section where we look at scenes or events or think about what other characters are feeling other than Katniss. Yeah. So I want to talk about Finnick's point of view. Oh, Finnick. We do get a bit of Finnick in the beginning of this chapter. At the end of the last chapter, Finnick and Katniss made the plan to not tell anyone they saw the propo with PETA. Mm-hmm. And so he becomes kind of a confidant of sorts to her at this point. And yeah, I just, I, I was wondering what the experience would be like for Finnick to understand what Katniss is going through, because he's thinking about the same thing with Annie, mm-hmm. to, yeah, have a kind of uh, unique experience that him, Katniss can relate in a way that no one else in District 13 can. Uh, other than maybe Hamish. And especially I thought it was in, it, it must be interesting to think about how he was reacting to being able to go out into the woods with Katniss. Which, I know, it's so cute. Yeah. I love that they get to go together. And it only takes up like half a page or something. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm it's like, I want time, more. But yeah. <laughs> and that has to be Finnick's first time out of District 13 in months. Yeah. That not only means that he's out of a confined space which could be difficult for anyone's mental health especially if they're not used to it but we see through his conversation with Katniss that he also gets to be honest with her in a way that he's not able to in District 13. He doesn't feel like he's being watched or monitored 
especially as someone who is considered unwell. And yeah, I can just imagine that even in the midst of all of these awful things, that moment is a bit of a respite, or a respite, if that's how it's pronounced. Who knows? I mean, I at least heard one person from England pronounce it respite, so I feel justified in using that, because (laughs) you look at the letters, and respite doesn't make sense. It's got an E at the end. Exactly. That's not how we do things. I mean, we don't... I mean, we don't even do know how right. we do things. <laughs> and the conversation that they had, I think, would also be fascinating to think about from Finnick's point of view, because they talk about how everyone has been keeping the propo from her, and he asks if that's true for Gail as well, if even Gail hasn't told her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can just think about how Finnick sees Katniss and Gail's relationship, because. Clearly a lot of people see them as having romantic entanglements. He might as well, but he's also seen her up close with Peta. Yeah. And That's they... why I think he is more concerned about how she feels about Peta. Of course, yeah. But, yeah, I just... They, they haven't really had a chance to talk in depth about what those relationships mean to Katniss. Not that I think that she would want to have that conversation ever anyway. Mm-hmm. But I can just imagine Finnick in trying to understand Katniss and befriend her, thinking about how she's navigating these relationships and, and what that means for her uh, to, to, yeah, just understand her a bit better. And I wonder if he's, like, also protective over anyone that he cares about yeah. not being exploited because of his own experiences. So I wonder if he's a little concerned about it. Like, oh, if he's not going to tell you, you can't trust him yeah. either. So, yeah. Yeah. The last thing that I was thinking about for Finnick is how he carried the stag back to District 13. I wonder if there's any part of him that gets a sense of fulfillment in using his strength for his adopted community, that he's able to do something productive instead of just being a patient. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if that if that's just meaningful to him in an important way. Yeah. And also... It's such a sweet moment when Pete is on screen again for the third interview and he grabs Katniss's hand because he looks even worse than he did in the last interview. Yeah, while everyone else is cheering, he is somber and... Just silent next to her being a support. Exactly. As someone should be. Mm -hmm. Which, you know, some people like ship them together and I'm like, she is a child and of all people that wouldn't exploit a child, I think it would be Finnick. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, obviously he flirts with everything breathing, but that's part of his own exploitation, unfortunately. Exactly. But people can just be friends sometimes. I know, right? <laughs> but yeah, I'm, I'm glad those little moments were added in. Mm-hmm. Same. What POV did you want to talk about? I was thinking a lot about Hamish in this chapter Hmm. because we've been, you know, critiquing him and his actions a lot in this book and and the last book. And not that we shouldn't do that, of course. He he does a lot of unhealthy things. Mm -hmm. Um, But also the compassionate side of thinking about what he's going through because you see how seeing PETA having been tortured 
she can't sleep and she yeah. feels guilty and she's worried and Hamish must be feeling that too mm-hmm. and even more so to some degree because he didn't tell him and they did choose Katniss and he was supposed to be his mentor and their first games together he didn't choose Peta either so yeah I was just thinking about him probably wanting to just drink so badly and that not being available to him because that's how he's been coping for decades and how lonely he probably is because Katniss is the only person who would close to understand his feelings about seeing PETA as well as District 12 being Mm -hmm. destroyed and, and going back there and things like that but you know, he, he kind of burned that bridge and he hasn't also really relied on anyone emotionally for decades either. And yeah. so just thinking about how lonely he must be and how much depression he must be feeling. And, you know, they, they do share that one moment when they see him on screen in this third interview and how she can tell that they are both just so worried for him and know how unlikely it is that they'll ever see him again. Mm-hmm. And yeah, just thinking about him in his room by himself, trying to deal with all of that after having never really learned how to deal with his emotions and, and the misery that his life has been. Yeah, absolutely. In this book, we kind of see Katniss, her support system, expand in Mm -hmm. a lot of new ways. But we also see her lose the support system that she's relied on in previous books, where Pete is captured, Effie's not around, Sinna's been killed, and Hamish has burnt that bridge. So while that changes things for our narrative, for Hamish, that just means that he's lost everyone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, because even in Catching Fire, Peta and Katniss would check up on him, mm-hmm. and Gail's mom was helping clean his place, so I'm sure they would have some conversations. And He had friends with the other mentors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, He had that people in the hob until that was burned down, you know? Yeah. And even if he wouldn't rely on them emotionally, there was still some amount of support there. Mm-hmm. And yeah, now he... he doesn't really have anyone yeah Um, but i also get katniss's annoyance at him you know she's out of patience for her mentor that has a drinking problem and you know just what he can and can't confront because she's forced to confront things and she's much younger you know and yeah and so like i understand her frustration it's just like be stronger Hamish. that that would be I imagine things that you would think. But mm-hmm. it's... Yeah, that was actually going to be one of my touch points mm. is how Katniss is, yeah, she's over his alcoholism, you know, what he can and cannot take. But then she also feels similarly once she's in it. She understands mm-hmm. why he says he can't take going back to District 12 uh, and how it would just make him want to drink. And it, yeah, just it reminds me of how people, I think, generally can be really empathetic to the idea of addiction but Mm. when you're in a relationship friendship family 
uh, who has addiction issues or other mental health issues, people can get really frustrated, especially if they're dealing with their own mental health issues or their own addiction problems mm-hmm. and are in a different place with that and how that can lead to burnout and that can lead to just really negative feelings that aren't perhaps the way that you'd want to approach that in an objective manner. But after seeing how hard that is and seeing how that can negatively affect you and your processing, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it's just, it's hard. And especially when it's, like, I mean, that would be the case in any situation. Mm-hmm. But I think there's an added layer when there's an age discrepancy as mm-hmm. well. When, like, somebody is the adult and somebody is the child. And the child shouldn't have to take care of the adult, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And, and it shows his level of privilege, too, where, you know, you could maybe frame this as him not going is a way of him setting a boundary that's healthy for him. Mm-hmm. But she doesn't have that ability. She's the Mockingjay. She has to do these things. I mean, she could say no. That's but true. When but the it would burden cost her capital. of that yeah. as well as she's probably afraid of if she says no, could that void her deal exactly. and with coin and all of that. And, and also when the whole burden of the revolution is placed on your shoulders and you just saw all of these wounded people and their loved ones bombed you know it's just like there's so much more at stake for her yes the pressure is so much greater the other person i was thinking about their pov is cressida Mm. and i was i was really appreciating her in this chapter from her asking Katniss if she's up for going back to District 12. Yeah. Uh, Again, maybe that pressure would not allow her to be like, no, I'm not. But at least she was asking instead of like, hey, we're going here. And And like she was studying Katniss's face. Like Mm -hmm. she saw Katniss's distress and yeah. Exactly. Brought it up and was considerate of it, at least in part. Yeah, and and when they're actually there, her saying that Katniss can do whatever she wants at her old house. Mm -hmm. And when she doesn't do anything, Cressida's just like, why don't we move on and and do something else? Whereas she didn't give that same (laughs) uh, space for Gail. Mm -hmm. I will ask you about what you are doing, your role in this and everything. And so I think she very much is aware of those differences of pressure and what they've been through because Katniss has been through two Hunger Games. Also, it it was great when she says that it's actually painful to watch Finnick talk about the dead tributes because he knew them personally while Plutarch is just like, oh, he is absolutely marvelous. And it's like, well, we know that Plutarch He's great at performing, but... Celebrating the performance of trauma. And Mm -hmm. it's just, yeah, really insensitive. Yeah, whereas Cressida, she does see the pain. And she, I think, is very sensitive to how difficult Mm. these things are. And these really, really difficult positions people are in. Yeah, in, in the aftermath of trauma, when their trauma is ongoing... And so, yeah, I just, I kind of think about how she navigates getting what she needs to get for these propos Mm -hmm. while also 
still trying to be sensitive while also still trying to treat these people on screen as actual humans with emotions, with breaking points, with experiences that she can never understand. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if internally she is debating all the time what is and isn't okay for her to do, how much she should or shouldn't push, what sort of questions should she ask, how can she advocate for those that that she's directing uh, or like in District 8 when she was like, no, we're not coming back quite yet. Like, Mm -hmm. give us a few more minutes. So yeah, I just... I'm sure there's always better ways to tow lines and everything like that. But I think she's, from what we've seen, I think she has done the best job of it from anyone in command. And that even includes Hamish. She seems to take the emotions of people seriously. Yeah. In a way that we don't often see from the Capitol. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah, I, I, uh, I think I had one of my intentions earlier to pay attention to Cressida and the rest of the film crew and Mm -hmm. um I was definitely keeping an eye on her and those were some really great moments uh that show her character even in these minute interactions it especially in contrast to Plutarch highlights (laughs) how invested she is in this rebellion and in the people of the rebellion Mm mm-hmm mm-hmm yeah, it's she sees Katniss as a person, not just the symbol of the rebellion. Yeah, more like Pooh Tark. <laughs> Good one, babe. Thanks. Well, why don't we go into our touch points? This is where we look at things that are happening in this chapter and see parallels in our own worlds. Yeah, so I had a few. Want to talk a little bit about my own something where I relate to Katniss a lot here, which is Gail's line about how. He knew she was going to kiss him because he was in pain. (laughs) And yeah, I just, I totally get Katniss's being more loving or more there for people when she sees that they are in pain or they're suffering or there's issues going on. Is that Um, why you love me so much? Because I'm always in pain? That's, that's, (laughs) I mean, honestly. (laughs) No, it's because I'm delightful. Yes, but I, I do think I, I can often I know you can be, be close to people, yeah, exactly, uh, who I, I do want to alleviate pain for and, and things like that. You know, but it, it, it it's not always romantic for me, and I don't even know if it's ro- really romantic for Katniss. Um, I think that's... I honestly don't think so, but yeah. Yeah, you know, it kind of translates that way because she knows that that's what Gail, Gail wants. Yeah. And, uh, and it's like... There's a closeness there, yeah. but that doesn't mean it's romantic. Exactly. No. Um, and so, yeah, similarly, you know, it does make me want to to be there for someone, to care, take care of them however I can. When uh, I had a friend recently who was hospitalized due to COVID, and I just wanted to do whatever I could for them, you know, while being safe and, and distant. And mm-hmm. it was really eating me up at times that I couldn't actually be there. Yeah. And... And this was a person who had been fully vaccinated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, People. wore masks. Yeah, everything. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's really uh, just something that I, I can understand Katniss uh, in that way. Mm-hmm. I was also, surprisingly enough, thinking about history 
<laughs> yeah, you don't do that all day, every day. <laughs> uh, for one, I was thinking about how Katniss thinks about the cabin as a historical artifact for later generations. Totally, yeah. Which is really, really interesting how something could be studied later on and there are many things that can be learned from something, but there's many things that can't be learned. So while you maybe are able to learn about building materials or if there are things carved into the walls, symbols, uh, you know, all sorts of other kinds of elements, you can't know why that poker is leaning up against that way, where that poker came from, what it meant for Gale in that moment to place it there. As a historian, all you can do is try to find as much evidence and, and try to build interpretations as best you can with an understanding that you'll never understand the past entirely. Which is also really cool in the story because now that we have songbirds and snakes, it already has that. Absolutely. Yeah, we know some of its history 75 years earlier, 65 years earlier. That Katniss doesn't. Exactly. And she's not looking for that mm -hmm. because the place hasn't just been abandoned. And what abandonment means, uh, I mean, I could have a whole touch point on abandonment uh, as an <laughs> idea, uh, but yeah, I just, I find that really fascinating. Uh, one of the classes that I'm teaching this semester is about the history of, of American cities. And one of the readings that we had was on geographers arguing that historians should read the city itself as if it's a primary source. Hmm. Uh, look around you and... Uh, be able to find questions, you know, research questions and uh, speculate on answers and start to build your research off of the lived environment. And Katniss just does a little bit of that here, which I think is fascinating. And yeah, I just, uh, I, I appreciate that even though we only get a few years in Panem's history here, Collins still imagines this as a world with a past and a future. Mm -hmm. And the characters in Panem imagine it as a world with a past and a future. Well, what about you? What were your touch points? So something that I was thinking about was the Hanging Tree song. Like you even mentioned, that Katniss, when she was a little girl, was making these rope necklaces because it mentioned a rope necklace without realizing this is for hanging. Yeah. And it was kind of reminding me, so there's this really great theological book called The Cross and the Lynching Tree by James H. Cohn. And he talked about at one point the cross has been transformed into this harmless, non-offensive ornament that Christians wear around their necks. Mm. And I felt like that's a little bit of what's happening here. It's like turning something that is potentially a horrific thing. Yeah. Uh, or it is a horrific thing, <laughs> execution. And turning, you know, she doesn't realize that she's doing this, but taking the horrific parts out of what was mm -hmm. and, uh, and in that way it loses some of its meaning. Yeah. So then I was just kind of thinking about lynching as well and how it always stuck out to me in the song that it goes, they say who murdered three. Mm. That it's not necessarily that he did murder three, it's they say he murdered three and so they killed him. And typical lynching in at least the United States history 
involved a criminal accusation. Right. Possibly an arrest and an assembly of a mob to Mm -hmm. execute the person. And oftentimes these white mobs had completely false criminal accusations about black people just so that they could lynch them Mm -hmm. uh, in in a quote-unquote justified way. And, you know, a common claim that was used to lynch black men was perceived sexual transgressions against white women. Right. Which I'm sure the vast majority were fabricated so that they could kill these black men. Mm -hmm. And even Theodore Roosevelt said the greatest existing cause of lynching is the perpetration, especially by black men, of the hideous crime of rape. And it's like, yes, rape is a hideous crime, but did any of these people have a trial? No, and why were all of the white men who were raping people not being lynched then? You know, so it's like clearly racial, anti-black. And when you have someone like Theodore Roosevelt making this statement, you know, it's just, I mean, lynching was defended by so many people for so long. Yeah. It's really not a good look when you are the more racist Roosevelt and the other one incarcerated over 100,000 Japanese Americans. Yeah. Racism. (laughs) There's a couple quotes I thought were interesting from from that book that I was mentioning, The Mm Crossing the Lynching Tree. Uh, Well, first of all, it's a great book and kind of the thesis is that If people want to be Christians in the United States, they cannot do so without looking at lynching Mm. and crucifixion and holding those things together. So, great book. (laughs) Uh, So, one quote is, Both the cross and the lynching tree were symbols of terror, instruments of torture and execution reserved primarily for slaves, criminals, and insurrectionists. And then he quotes a book by Paula Fredrickson that says, Crucifixion was a Roman form of public service announcement. Do not engage in sedition as this person has, or your fate will be similar. The point of the exercise was not the death of the offender as such, but getting the attention of those watching. Crucifixion, first and foremost, is addressed to an audience. And I was just kind of thinking about that with the hanging tree Mm. and imagining how it probably was used in District 12 as a way to suppress insurrection, a way to curb anyone putting any part of a toe out of line. And we already know that there's all of these ridiculous laws on the books, right? Because when Thread comes in as the new head peacekeeper, Mm. he's enforcing all of these laws that nobody's bothered with for a long time. But clearly, there was a time when those were enforced. Yeah. Katniss's mom and Hamish remember it. And it must have been going on well before the first rebellion happened and they went to war they went to war to begin with because of the treatment of them in the districts yeah. and the oppression and exploitation well and and we see that in songbirds and snakes as well how this hanging tree is used and who it's used against 
And I was thinking about Lucy Gray writing this song in our Songbirds and Snakes read-through. You know, I was very much reading her as Romani. Mm-hmm. And the Romani people have also been so persecuted, killed, genocided, enslaved throughout history. And even Joseph I of Austria in the 1700s issued an edict against the Romani ordering that all adult males were to be hanged without trial, whereas women and young males were to be flogged and banished forever. Wow. And well past there, that time period and even after uh world war ii there's so many anti-romani laws throughout europe not just in eastern europe but in western europe as well Mm -hmm. there's a long history of mobs burning romani houses and chasing them out of town some lynchings as well i mean obviously this law yeah Uh, and so i was just yeah really thinking about her in particular writing this song that if you interpret it a certain way to me it's like we will never be treated fairly Mm -hmm. these systems and people in power's opinions will always be against us we'll never get a fair trial so dying at the hands of oppressors at the hands of state violence in some way is inevitable Mm. and so there is this like come with me and we'll be free of all of this so yeah i was i was just thinking about that in in terms of the creation of this song and then how it could still be used and and the role of this hanging tree to intimidate and i mean i mean because that's part of why lynchings were done as well it wasn't just to kill those people it's to have the threat of lynchings right. so that people stay where you want them to stay or do what they, you want them to do. Yeah, I was thinking about how that likely could have been something that was happening in District 12. Yeah, absolutely. It's fascinating to think about these symbols of power and symbols of violence that are used to maintain power. How symbols can be used in so many different ways i think the cross is such a fascinating one mm-hmm. because yeah the, the the burning crosses and things like that were messages that said you are not safe here you need to toe the line mm-hmm. and when you have a hanging tree and a quote-unquote justice system <laughs> that is in charge of it that they're essentially using that itself as a act of yeah terror and control to say there's always the ability for us to hang you if you step out of line. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and, like, that's the police force now, mm-hmm. right? Just patrolling through neighborhoods and stuff. I mean, that's that's part of why they're there, right? Absolutely, yeah. I was also thinking about Snow being like, look at these traitors trying to stop the dissemination of information. <laughs> Don't get me started. <laughs> oh, I mean, it's, it's so good because that's exactly what happens. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, this is the exact response of people who are actually spreading lies and like actual fake news, you know? Yeah. Like, 
oh, the liberals are trying to silence us. And like, look at, oh, Facebook took this thing down. I mean, they don't even, right? But it's, yeah, I mean, it's, it doesn't need to be backed up by any facts mm -hmm. like that. You just say it and then people will just latch on and feel persecuted. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's so wild. Honestly, it was one of my wonderments of just how can people do that? How can you wield quote-unquote truth as a weapon to hide your lies? Like, to be actively dishonest and utilize the ideals of truth and honesty mm -hmm. as you're uplifting that dishonesty. It's just, it. I, I cannot wrap my head around it because it's just so awful. And yeah, we have so many people in our government and other governments, yeah. you know, just awful, awful people doing this around the world. And I just, I can't understand it. Yeah, I mean, an idea of truth has been destroyed. I think people can go way too far in the other direction with an idea of truth mm -hmm. that, like, doesn't leave any coarseness for anything that doesn't fit their ideas to get in. But sometimes there are just facts. Yeah. <laughs> and yours are not facts. They're lies. Exactly. Sometimes there's a video recording. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that was just very well placed. And this was written so far before Trump was even around <laughs> in politics. Yeah. Politics with a big air quote. <laughs> <laughs> I was also thinking about just, you know, a quick patriarchy watch. Plutarch kisses the top of mm. Katniss's head, and I'm like, ew, stop it. You didn't ask her, and she wouldn't want that. And then also, ableism watch, Katniss being like, this is probably the first real conversation Pollux has had mm. in who knows how long. I'm like, he can sign with his brother. Yeah. Okay, Katniss. Don't need to use your voice to have a conversation. Yeah, Katniss. Yeah, yeah, it's a really good point. But when we move into our wonderments. Yeah, my, my other main wonderment was, how, how does Plutarch know about all of these past weapons that he's apparently a huge fan of? These weapons that no longer exist, and Katniss describes them as, you know, kind of the dreams of a game maker who doesn't have <laughs> access to even more powerful weapons. But it just, yeah, I kind of started wondering how, you know, what... what does remain of those weapons, what records or information still exists that describes them, um, and how that relates to their inability to rebuild them or to use them if they're still around. You know, what is it that's changed? You know, the, the nukes that are around, both in District 13 and that are still usable by the Capitol, are still, you know, very sophisticated technologies and weapons and destructive uh, weapons and it got me to wondering you know are these things leftovers from previous civilizations previous societies that they don't understand exactly how to create anymore they mm. just understand how to use them or they literally don't have the resources to do it anymore right yeah uh yeah so i'm, I'm just curious as you know when they still have the resources to build hovercrafts and all the thing mutations and all the things that we see in the arenas these things that for us seem amazing what is it that changed that made it so that they are actually on a decline technologically from 
things in the past? Yeah. Yeah, it it is an interesting question. What about you? What are you wondering? I was kind of wondering about how Snow is dealing with the Rebels having completely taken over District 11 Mm -hmm. since they are the main center for food production mm-hmm. and him back in songbird and snakes remembering wartime hunger and if that's like influencing any of his decision making for the worse <laughs> he does seem to be guided a lot by fears and then i was also wondering about how Beatty feels interrupting the interview with Peta, mm-hmm. and even like breaking through as Peta is being restrained and then beaten, because Beatty has interacted with Peta, and I'm sure he's not happy to see clearly that he's been tortured, and now he's like live being tortured, and yeah. So I just I, I'm I'd be very curious on how he feels about it since he's the main actor there. Yeah. Especially since he seems to care about Katniss and Fennec and, you know, the others. So, yeah, I think that would be a very difficult position to be in. Yeah. But what do we move into our last section, our intentions? What is your intention coming from this chapter or this conversation? Yeah, I think my intention is to to try to be a bit more like Cressida in Mm. being aware and discerning of where people around me might be emotionally because I think I'm someone who often tries to deflect feelings of social awkwardness or anxiety with humor and laughing a lot and kind of being a little bit more gregarious and I would not want to be the Plutarch in a situation where I am kind of looking in a more positive or jocular fashion at something and not really seeing what's going on with the people who I'm communicating with. So yeah, I think that that's my intention to be, uh, you know, a bit more aware, take the beats that I need to take to to read what I can of the people around me um, and to, to ask those questions of, you know, are you okay? Are you up for this? Yeah. How about you? What's your intention? I think my intention is to try to be a little more like Finnick because... I also have the thing where it's like, oh, I want to help someone. I want to help if they're having a problem, if they need help with something. Like, how do, how do we create a solution for this? And he can't do that. But he's just there. He's there as a support. And he asks a question or two. You know, he's there to be. And that really helps her. Yeah, that's great. Well, I think that's going to wrap up this week's discussion. So what's happening next time on The Hunger Games? We're going to be reading Chapter 10, where Katniss and friends have a big ol' sleepover. Hope they brought the marshmallows. And a bit of fire. (laughs) Well, thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode of Geek Between the Lines. You can find links to our website, our social media, and our Patreon in the episode description. And we hope that you join us on Patreon so that you can become a supporter of the podcast and get access to all the great special features that we're doing just for our patrons. Another way you can help us out is by telling a friend about the podcast. We want to thank Kimberly Taylor Pastel at Lacelet for designing our logo. You can find her at lacelet.com, Instagram, or Patreon. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Until then, 
Geek out. out.